City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, the acres and acres of tar and cement fade into the background and we fade into the foreground or we know we we move into the foreground. Uh Um, I actually, um, surprisingly today on this weather, I actually rode a bike here this morning and I got blown here. (laughs) Karina's saying she did as well, yes. Yeah, you were five minutes early. Depending where you come from, but I've I've got to ride home. I think I'm not going to be blown home, so I might even even turn gutless and ride down to the station and come on a train. (laughs) Um, Wait and see. Zeb Peaks here. I'm Kevin Healy, by the way. And um, Zeb, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I was just talking to Karina Offair before about um, feeling a little bit despondent about the IPCC report. Yeah, we'll discuss Um, that later in the program. Yeah. Yeah. and I'm going to pour some tea for people. It is that energy day. It's the second Wednesday of the month. I'm presuming we all want a cup of tea, do we? Yeah. Um, and, um, and we're going to be talking to Dave Sweeney from about 20 past. Thanks, Karina. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about a number of things. We originally planned to get him on to talk about rehabilitation of mines and the way that, in fact, they don't do it. And yeah. last week, I think we might have mentioned, but certainly it was on the Brecky Show last Wednesday, the Ningaloo, Roof, um, Ningaloo Reef issue of Western Australia, where Woodside want to, you know, end of a mine's life, they want to dump the waste onto, onto a pristine area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll talk to Dave about that. We'll also talk to him about uh, about the report, of course, from um, on climate change this week. So there's plenty to talk about. Plus, of course, this week, August the 6th, was, I think, if my... If my maths are correct, the 76th anniversary of the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. Yeah, and, um, wow. And, of course, three days later on Nagasaki. So, and Dave, for those who aren't, don't we just mention, I'm going to talk to Dave Sweeney. He is the anti-nuclear campaigner with um, Australian Conservation Foundation. So uh, it's quite appropriate this week on the nuclear bomb. And, of course, he's an active member of ICANN, and which won the um, Nobel Peace Prize for its campaign against nuclear weapons, and that their campaign has now led to that being ratified by the United Nations. So um, all's going well. Okay, anything you wanted to talk about uh, at all? Um, 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 well, I suppose one thing, just to follow up from ages ago when you went here, Meg and I were talking about uh, solar energy and community batteries, and we realised we were a bit confused about why um, people would want community batteries. But it's basically... Um, just to follow up on that, um, obviously you need to have storage for solar because if you're producing it, it's going to be during the hours of sunlight and not the nighttime. Uh, you could have batteries in your house, ha- like personally in your house, but they're costly. You could have a more central um, sort of solar production and a giant battery but they also have their difficulties. And the kind of compromise in the middle is that you have a network of community batteries um, that are, you know, funded by local government or whatnot. Uh, And they kind of uh, help to, like, have a middle ground there that helps with the cost of things. Yeah, yeah. And at the moment they they don't 
far as I know, they're not not capable of storing enough to, if you wanted to go all night. But most people, of course, only don't need it all night. They need it until they go to bed. So yeah. that's not a major problem. Um, but also, the last couple of weeks, there's been a couple of fires in uh, in batteries that have yeah in the giant problems. So we just yeah. I'm sure that needs to be looked at. I'm sure it'll be sorted out. But uh, but they are certainly they and their prices are coming down too. Of course, as as, as all these things do as they go on and become more popular. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yesterday, it was interesting that the the media yesterday highlighted very much the international climate change report, other than, of course, the usual suspect, <laughs> which managed to have a front page story about a blowout in costs on the Westgate Tunnel called Wastegate Tunnel, and they did, <laughs> they did manage to. Um, and of course, they're once again you're blaming Dan Andrews for something that's the responsibility of the companies that took it up. And and we must remember that this tunnel was is only there because uh, Transurban came to this government and put the proposal. It wasn't a government saying we want to build this. They came with an unsolicited tender, and in fact got all sorts of concessions off government for doing it. Yeah. Extensions to their to their um, toll, for instance, on the on the City Link tollway. Um, so, uh, but anyway, it's the government's fault in court of the Herald Sun, of course, as usual. <laughs> um, uh, but they, they did have a, a, a pointer to the fact that on page two, which is sort of where you bury things in, uh, in newspapers, the left-hand page is the we're warming far too quickly and there was a story there about it. But again, no massive emphasis of it as, as everywhere else in the media, which is interesting. And just as a by the by, we mentioned last week about an ad by Clive Palmer, these ads he runs all the time, where lockdowns cost jobs, and we pointed out the soda bosses who lock down nickel plants and don't pay their workers. Um, and this, this in the front page of the Herald Sun yesterday, he's got one, lockdowns affect mental health. And I thought, well, with the way he's been raving and ranting lately, he's proving his point, I would have thought, um, pretty strongly. Um, yeah. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, that reminds me of another thing that I... Uh, Sort of COVID-related, sort of not. I was reading the Friends of the Earth newsletter and they mentioned, you know, even though we're still in winter, it's time to start thinking about the fire season and the fact that the fire seasons are going to get bigger and bigger. Um, And I was thinking about the link between that and COVID because, of course, if we're going to have masses of smoke in the air um, like we did in the 2019-2020 fires, that's a problem for breathing um, but also you know if people are having to evacuate their homes or you know go out um, at a moment's notice to fight yeah. fires how are we going to manage that with COVID lockdown, safety simultaneously yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't really have answers to that but it no. just made me think but it, it's an interesting point I mean, masks of course might then become even more important yeah true thing. yeah um, yeah. Look, I, I want, you know, Australia, the Olympic Games, Australia won all these medals and we're also proud and all that sort of stuff. Um, but um, we say, therefore, on a per capita basis, we are really right up at the top because, uh, you know, we get the number of medals we get for our population compared <laughs> to, say, right. China or the US or Russia or, or the particularly the USA... Um, we come up highly, but in fact, we're only 17th in a per capita basis, you'll be pleased to hear or not pleased to hear. But I'll, I'll, I'll lay you odds, you can't name the country that has the highest, that wins on a pop- population basis per medal. Ooh, um... 
Um, uh, no, it's impossible. <laughs> the Vatican. You're, 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 you're never <laughs> Can you imagine it. some popes <laughs> competing <laughs> in the Olympics? It's Bermuda. <laughs> right. <laughs> Bermuda got one gold medal, but its total population is only 63,900, so it uh, it wins on that basis. Oh, okay. nice. <laughs> that, that was a piece of totally useless information. <laughs> but it is interesting that, like, I, I feel like the amount of medals that countries win is very proportionate to how wealthy they are. Um, so, you know, that it makes sense that Australia would have a quite high per capita medal count because it's a wealthy course. country. But and of course, we win most of ours in swimming, so once the second week comes around and they get on the athletic track, we, we bomb out. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, that's it. Now, there's also a, The Age the other day had a headline, Defence Plan to Address Serious Failings. The serious failings being the fact that we it's been shown we committed war crimes. And it's, you know, it was probably a war crime to go there in the first place, but once we haven't got there, we, we exacerbated the war crimes in Afghanistan. So I thought... Uh, Serious failings is putting it pretty well. I mean, the best way to exacerbate it, I think, would be to have no military at all. Just, uh, you know, why have people have to go around killing people around the world? Why don't we just uh, have nothing? But on the other side of that, of course, in fact, also in the age, this was a little while ago, but I think it, it, it goes to that question, a Republican congressman called Mike Gallagher, a rising star in the U.S. Congress, he says the U.S. and Australia should be prepared to go to war to defend Taiwan against a potential Chinese military invasion. So it's getting serious because our, our minister, Peter Dutton, desperately wants to do that as well. Oh, no. Yeah, Peter Dutton is yeah. not um, a good egg. Now, on headlines, I think it sums up pretty well uh, the business attitude to living with COVID is um, the front page of the Financial Review last Wednesday, and right across the front page, deaths part of living with virus, uh, which really is a, a contradiction in terms, I would have thought, is probably deaths part of not living with virus. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. They assume the not living, of course, won't be them. Uh, but um, it's it's the business community saying we have to have a have a balance. And in fact, Matt Canavan, that well known well known arch conservative from Queensland, wrote a piece in the Fin Review on Friday, talking about the cost of each each life we're saving by lockdowns, which he estimated at some incredible figure. Um, some billions, billions, billions of dollars. Uh, his figures were taken apart and, and torn to pieces uh, by the Australia Institute a couple of days later. But he's actually saying that we, what they're really saying is we have to put a price on, on death, a price on life. And if, the, if it costs too much to save a life in terms of its effect on business, then we have to uh, go out in favour of business and uh, Wow, people have okay. to die. That's, what they're, that's yeah. what they're effectively saying. I mean, people, yeah, already do that in other situations. And it is true that, like, lockdown also has a cost on, on people's lives. Mm. And, you know, there has been, um, there has been a, like, rise in mental health, like, difficulties and things. But I th- I'm pretty sure it's been shown. <laughs> and comparing Australia, for instance, to other countries that have had... Uh, like um, other approaches to dealing with COVID, that Australia's lockdowns have been much more, if you want to use the like economically, uh, I don't know what I'm saying here, but basically they, they've, they've fallen on the right 
side of, of... Well, I think we've got to do it. The point is, if you don't do it, you're going, it's going to run right and people are going to die in, you know, in exactly. thousands. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, we concede that it does have an impact on business and we worry if that worries us only in terms that workers miss out. But yeah. then, and we're seeing, of course, at the moment, this absolute hypocrisy. We mentioned last week how $25 billion, the for Treasury figure, um, which might even be an underestimation, $25 billion was ripped off by employers who didn't qualify for JobKeeper last year. Uh, and we pointed out again that while they went after robo-debt, the minister, Josh Frydenberg, had already said he would not conduct a review into that and uh, yeah. we won't be looking at it. And, of course, we've seen the hypocrisy. It was highlighted on the Brecky Show here this morning again. And, uh, that that they're now going after workers who got JobKeeper, uh, but they're not going after the bosses who li- oh, deliberately no. ripped off. So frustrating. Um, so um, you know, they're, they're just—it's just blatant in terms of their, their the way they operate in favour of big business, of course, and we know that. Uh, but speaking of which, um, people might recall Stephen Conroy, who was an ALP right-wing power broker in the and in the Senate for a number of years. He was minister for something or other. And uh, he's you'll be pleased to know as as Crown is in more and more trouble with royal commissions around the place, he's been taken on as a consultant to help them um, sort the whole thing out. So Stephen Conroy, who has apparently been working as a consultant to various gambling mobs anyway, is now helping out Crown. So isn't that wonderful? Um, and and good luck to him. He's uh, yeah. <laughs> Still making a quid, the old Steve. It's lovely to see. Uh, on the on the industrial front, uh, the there was we've mentioned, I think last year there was a case in which a court ruled that a worker was entitled under in the circumstances of the case the worker was entitled to paid leave. And bosses screamed saying this was double dipping because they already get an allowance for that in their casual, this is a casual worker, um, they already get an allowance for that in their casual pay. Now this presumes of course they get paid the the right rate in casual pay, (laughs) I think in most cases they don't, but that was assumed by the bosses and by their spokespeople in the financial uh, media that they all get paid the right rate and it allows for all the things they don't get like superannuation, holiday pay, sick leave and all those things. But the, the company appealed against the decision and went to the High Court last week and the government joined them in the case against the workers, against the union, and the um, the High Court found in favour of the bosses and said that they were not entitled to any paid leave or any of these things. And in fact, they're now celebrating in those places. Uh, High Court backs freedom of contract, big headline on the front page for Thursday, double dip casual pay thrown out. And many, many stories since then by supporters of all that. Um, high head editorial, High Court win for right to choose. Well, you, you know, workers apparently can choose um, whether they're going to be casual or not. Uh, in many cases where you've got absolutely no choice, whatever, of course. Yeah. And in most cases, I suspect they certainly don't get what they were, what they, even the full allowance. And we know that casual pay in most cases that they're talking about is pretty low pay in the first place. And uh, and so it's yeah. just yet again. It's amazing. Attack. Yeah, it's amazing how they managed to frame it as like the poor little defenseless businesses against mm. the mighty entitled worker that always wants more. 
Oh, these bloody avaricious workers who just, just they just want, 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 don't they? Uh, I think we might have also mentioned last week that Coles abandoned enterprise bargaining just because it can, um, and boss, workers can't do anything about it, but it means workers there and, and many other places are going to end up with much less pay. Their paying conditions are going to be um, reduced quite substantially. Now, McDonald's, Bunnings, Domino's, all these places, they're all doing, they've all done the same thing, so they're all reducing their work, their, their workers' pay and conditions. Um, and um, and Ra- Josh Cullinan from Rafu, the, the the good the good retail and fast food workers union, said that um, the effect of these actions is they have such common rates, much com- uh, such minimum rates already that there's no desire on them to negotiate something better than that unless they're forced to, and now they can't be forced to. So he he came out very strongly on it. And in industrial terms also, it's not looking good for workers these days. To make matters worse, uh, we know that the construction, the jackboots authority that's supposed to smash the building unions, construction unions, and fines them for all sorts of things, fines them for doing what unions have done for for eons, which is now made illegal by government. Mm-hmm. It's like safety issues and all those sort of, you know, little matters like that. And you can get fined thousands and millions, in fact, for... Um, for for just taking action over over um, matters like that, and last week the the same Jackboots Commission went even further, and the AWU, which is seen as a sort of good right wing union, was still fined one hundred and seventy seven thousand for workers at One Steel, whose crime was to attend the ACTU pre election rally in October twenty eighteen, uh, and workers. Went fifty workers from one steel went to that, and then they were fined for going to it. Uh, the the taken them what three years now to get to court, but nonetheless, yeah. eight, three years later, they were fined one seventy seven thousand last week. And of course, one steel is not a not a part of the construction industry, but it it makes material used in it. So they've now extended their their terms of reference in that sense, that they're not just going after construction unions, but after anyone who does anything that is, is involved with construction at all, what? such as one steel making equipment that, that then goes to construction. So it, once again, that's extended their powers, but also we've seen workers, 50 workers in their union being fined for attending a rally in 2018 called by the ACTU. And yet that's, that's deemed now to be illegal by um, by the courts. Yeah, uh, it just there's really not much to say about that except no. you know. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not, it? And just to finish up on that because we've got to go to Dave. But um, arising from that one of the ruling about casual workers not being entitled to uh, the Deliveroo is now saying it's going to appeal a case where a worker was deemed to be employed by them yep, using yep. the same law saying that we're going to now appeal because we believe also that this worker is not a, a worker as far as we're concerned. He's a, he's a contractor to us and they're going to use that. Uh, so um, things are not looking great for the working people of this country at the moment, unfortunately. So we're a cheery little program this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but let's um, cheer them up even more. Talk about atom bombs, climate change and and mining companies stopping up the environment. That should cheer people up knowing yeah. by the end of the program. We'll get Dave Sweeney on after this break. All good fun.
When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Okay, Dave Sweeney's on the line. Dave, as I said earlier, is the anti-nuclear campaigner with Australian Conservation Foundation. And Dave, um, we we're going to we get it on to talk about originally about uh, rehabilitation of mines around Australia. We might talk about Ningaloo Reef shortly, but of course, anti-nuclear campaigner. And I mentioned also, of course, your membership of ICANN and its role in having the UN now make nuclear weapons, in fact, illegal technically. Um, the this week, of course, August the sixth, Hiroshima. Um, three days later, Nagasaki. And if, if my maths are correct, the seventy-sixth anniversary um, comment. Yeah. Well, first, yeah, maths are correct, Kevin. And good morning, and good morning to the crew. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right. It is the seventy-sixth um, uh, anniversary of those bombings, which were the basically the start of the nuclear age, the unveiling of the nuclear age. And apart from incredible destruction done to those two cities um, and civilian populations. It was also basically at the start of a time when we as a planet, Kevin, and uh, we realised that we could um, uh, extinguish ourselves and our planet, not just have uh, uh, greater firepower, but actually have fatal and existentially threatening firepower. And, you know, for a lot of us, and still now today, We've lived in that shadow ever since, and we've lived with a combination of, of you know, 
fingers crossed, um, hope, and through a combination of good luck more than good management, we have limped along through political crises and incompetent and deficient leaders, um, and the fingers in anger haven't gone on the red button. There's been nuclear testing, nuclear bombs. There's been Indigenous communities dislocated and impacted, and that continues here through our region in the Pacific and around the world. The bombs haven't been used again in war, but they have they have dominated and they've poisoned our body politic and the way that we think and cooperate or not. And I'd also, every day, these weapons drain millions of dollars, you know, staggering sums of money away from real human needs. And um, so they kill even when they're not killing. And the world saw this in action, uh, as you say, 76 years ago. So that's been a really important time for ICANN and for nuclear weapons abolitionists and people who, and there's so many, who are working in different ways and expressions of it for peace to refocus and reinforce the call for... This isn't just to honour the past. This is to protect the future. We need to get on board with this treaty and get off with these weapons. Yeah. Um, We were talking a while back on the show about um, research and universities' involvement in weapons manufacturing um, sort of expanding in Australia. Um, And I was thinking about, you know, the the researchers that were first involved in um, creating the first atom bomb and, like, Richard Feynman is so famous for being, um, like, a nice guy. Uh, It makes me think, how did those people manage to keep that part of it out of their minds? And what do you think about um, what universities need to be doing to, um, in in this sort of fight against nuclear weapons? That is a super double-barrelled question and a really thoughtful one because I think about that, I'm sure lots of us who work for change think about that a lot. How can people who are doing something which is um, clearly negative and adverse, how can they sort of, you know, do the sort of sleep at night? How are you comfortable with your role? Um, Specifically, I thought about it in relation to like the development of nuclear weapons because that, when it comes to adverse, is the apex of negative, the ability Mm -hmm. to destroy the entire planet. Um, and I think for some of those at the time, Deb, it was a combination. It was the urgency of, like, oh, we've got to do this before the Germans do. In the first instance, it was that. Um, and I think some people, particularly um, a lot of people who had experienced um, the Nazi regime before the, the, the start of hostilities in World War Two, and who had fled in that time, um, were really driven by a sense of, if the, if the fascists get this, We'll it's game over. Right. I think that changed along the way. That urgency and the legitimacy of that urgency changed. Um, I think a bunch, for a bunch of them, it's that weird thing of like the physics, the science, the the actual. How do you make this stuff happen? How do you control and then release control of this vast power? Um, I think for a lot of um, particularly blokes, that was an, an allure. It was like a, a new alchemy, a new wizardry. People talk in terms of um, the nuclear priesthood. And, you know, Oppenheimer, who led the Manhattan Project, when the Trinity test went off, the one that they went off in the New Mexico desert before they um, they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, Oppenheimer at the time said, now I have um, I've become God, the destroyer wow. of worlds. World. So he, he quoted the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian scripture, I'd have become God, the destroyer of worlds. So there's this combination of urgency to stop fascism, um, scientific 
drive, uniqueness. We can carve our place in history and the physics is so beautiful, coupled with this massive sense of ego and power. Jam them together, overlay American military industrial complex, um, swaggering sort of um, strange love generals and buckets of cash. And there is the the circumstances for the creation of an atomic bomb. Interesting, though, in reflection, you know, like um, Einstein, whose thinking had been so significant in much of the thinking about how do we advance the science and unlock the secret of the atom-style thinking, um, he said in reflection, said, if I had known, I would have been a watchmaker. Wow. Um, so, you know, <laughs> there, there is that sense. And we often see, you know, and you often see it in other circles and cycles of, of things as well, where people may be reflecting on their grandkids and reflecting on their life, say, mm, should have, would have done it differently. What we're saying is that we have our should have, would have choice moment right now. We know these are the worst weapons we got. We know the ban treaty is the best tool we've got to get rid of them. So let's enact that and let's get serious on it, put it into place, make it real and actually wind back the existential threat, the shadow that we all have lived with, whether we're aware of it or not, mm-hmm. for now approaching eight decades. Dave, I know we, we know Australia gets its instructions from the US and so it hasn't signed this um, the UN treaty, <clears throat> but have have people like, have ICANN or uh, groups involved in the campaign had any any dealing with government at all, trying to talk them into doing it or got some sort of reaction from government if you approach them about it? Yeah, like we obviously have approached them um, because this is now international law. It's not just what ICANN or a group of sort of activists and academics and, and peaceniks want. This is now international law. So it's what Australia must comply with to be a responsible and credible member of the community and nation. So we have put that case to the government. Um, it hasn't landed on particularly fertile ground Kevin, as you could imagine. Um, and you're right, like through the process of this, the Australian government either ignored or belittled or at some point actively opposed. Um, so uh, the, they haven't been supportive of this. They're not supportive at the moment. We're calling on them, though, absolutely to do this. We're heartened by the fact that the federal Labor have, have come out clearly and said that in government they will sign and ratify the treaty. That's a very significant step. Now, obviously, you know, um, at 3CR, all of us know and listeners know that, you know, there, you always have a large, you know, bit of sodium under your hand. There's a pinch of salt in a politician's words. But they've been said at the highest level, they've been said repeatedly and they've been reinforced in platform and reinforced in the platform again this, this year. And so that's a really important thing, that the alternative government has said we will sign and ratify. So that breaks this bipartisan deadlock, which is one of the killers for any action and any discourse in this country, the Mm -hmm. combination of Murdoch, you know, media ownership and bipartisan um, cone of silence. So that's broken and that starts to raise pressure. There is, you know, COVID willing, the first meeting of state parties, the first gathering of the 55 nations that have signed and ratified the treaty and the many others that have supported the treaty and are in the process, the internal, their domestic process of ratification, all these parties, along with civil society and other state party observers, are coming together early next year. At the moment, it's planned to be January in Vienna um, in a conference, which is the first meeting of state parties to... um, to take the next steps to operationalise and advance and spread this treaty. So we're obviously calling on Australia, if it 
hasn't signed by then, which is, you know, how, if there was a horse called not signing by January, um, you'd put your money on it. Mm. But we're calling on Australia to turn up and observe and to actually see that the world is moving this way. Now, that is, you know, sometimes a long stretch. We've seen it with climate action, for example. The world's moving one way. The Australian government sees another uh, sector that it pays its, uh, its dues to. Um, but we are going to continue to push... There's a, a couple of positive signs. There's a there's a parliamentary friendship group which is cross party, so there are coalition people and cross benches on that friendship group. Um, that is a, a group to support the aims of the treaty. Um, but yeah, look, the long and short of it is that the government is hostile, um, and that is unlikely to change. But pressure for that change is inevitable and will grow, and will be left really if we don't sign this, looking like what we'd be, which is a nation outside of international law and norms that is prepared to support and countenance the use of weapons of mass destruction. You're right, of course, in terms of not signing by January, it's long odds on. But um, Kimber, Dave, it's related to this. Um, we've talked about it before where they plan to dump nuclear waste. Um, there's been a development there, obviously. Yeah, so the federal government... This, radioactive waste has been this long-running issue. We've spoken about it before, and I know many shows and people at CR have been actively involved in campaigns to support particularly First Nations uh, um, groups right around the country who have faced this threat before. At the moment, the federal government is still pursuing its plan of let's concentrate all of Australia's radioactive waste, bury the lower-level stuff and store the higher-level stuff next door in a shed till we work out what we're really going to do with it. Um, at the moment, they're looking and targeting a place near a little town called Kimber, a um, couple of hours west of Port Augusta in regional South Australia. And um, for a year, this, the legislation to make this possible has been stalled in the Senate because the government removed a protection whereby people who didn't approve or agree with or accept the siding licence could question it and take legal action, have administrative review. The government tried to remove that clause and remove people's day in court, and that includes the local bungalow traditional owners who are absolutely opposed to this plan and who have been explicitly removed from any consultation process. And it includes the local uh, grain growers. The area is big cereal cropping country, Kevin, and big broadacre wheat, barley, oats, and, um, and th those grain growers really do not want uh, either the perception of the reality of radioactive waste in the midst of a very productive region. Um, they've had their voices taken under the planned law, so they couldn't legally contest. It's been stalled for a year, and uh, the minister, uh, Keith Pitt, was um, forced to reintroduce the, the long-held right of legal review in order to get the law through. So what you would have noticed is this law, which has been in a holding pattern, has now gone through. Minister Pitts put out a media release saying, you know, full steam ahead, we're good to go with Kimber. But it is one more step in what will be a very long fight. And there's a growing thing, there's an interesting thing here, Kim, because 95% of Australia's radioactive waste is at one site today. And that site's the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation's Lucas Heights Reactor Site in Southern Sydney. Yep. There's 1,200 people that work there. There's federal coppers 24-7, dogs and razor wire. It's in shielded purpose-built uh, buildings inside purpose-built containers. It is actually the best place for our worst waste to be 
because it's already there, it's on site and it's tenure secured and it's got high levels of monitoring and emergency response capacity. So our argument is, why would you move this stuff twice? Why would you move it from a place where there's all these assets that protect it and isolate it? Move it to a regional town in South Australia, thousands of kilometres on trucks to South Australia, when you actually don't know what you're going to do with the most serious stuff. The most serious stuff's already in one place, the best place for it. Keep it there till you work out what you're going to do with it. Like the old building saying, you know, which is measure twice, cut once. Don't double handle radioactive waste. And we're starting to get some traction and some agreement on that. And ANSTO is in the process of um, expanding its interim storage capacity. So we are really pushing the government not to advance Kimber, to instead advance interim storage capacity at ANSTO in Sydney and then have what we've never had, which is an actual proper discussion away from headlines, a discussion about how do we manage this stuff? because it actually is a really significant issue. There's material here which needs to be isolated for people on the planet for 10,000 years. So it's not a political football and it's not being handled responsibly. So we're trying to put the brakes on Kimber and elevate the option of interim storage and then use that as a circuit breaker to move from the trenches to talk, trenches to the table and have a fair income discussion about what do we do with radioactive waste in this country apart from start to stop, you know, stop making it. What do we do with the stuff that we have? Because it's a big decision. It's a complex and quite a wicked problem. It's not easy. You can't mm-hmm. just press media release it away, but you can't put it on the back of a truck and dump it on unwilling Aboriginal and remote communities and say that's responsible. Nothing about it is responsible or, more importantly, in one sense, in a functional sense, nothing about it is actually necessary. So this is a manufactured political crisis to try and literally sweep under the carpet a very dirty mess. Yeah, wow, good point. Um, I think that there's also a fundraiser for the Bungalow people um, to have their say on Kimber, so we'll put that in the show notes. And uh, is there any other things that listeners can do to support that? Yeah, look, there's there's a lot that's going on. The, the um, again, I think it's it's pressure on the government, and it's all linked into the question of um, responsibility. Um, because you know, like if you look at all the things we've been talking about, it's about you know what sort of country do we want, what sort of responsibility. So any sort of pressure on the government, and particularly important to link this discussion in. For when people now, and we're seeing it increasingly, um, you know, we've got Matt Canavan and Sam McMahon and a bunch of conservative politicians who are banging the nuclear drum again mm-hmm. and saying we have to have nuclear power. They have not been able, in 40 years of failed process, to find a radioactive waste site for either low-level waste or intermediate-level waste in Australia. It's been a complete debacle. And we've got people walking around and saying, let's go hell for leather on domestic nuclear power, which would create high-level radioactive waste, which is orders of magnitude more complicated than the already complicated stuff we are failing to deal with. So when people go, oh, nuclear's clean, or nuclear's this, or nuclear's that, nuclear creates waste that we don't know where to put or how to handle. Um, And I think, you know, it's it's really important to close that loop and stop this sort of... uh, positioning PR nonsense that in some way this is either new or clear. It's neither. It's a flawed and failed 20th century technology that needs to be decoupled and left in the past along with fossils. Dave, we'll move on. Um, 
we're also going to talk about rehabilitation of, of mines and, and com- we've talked about it before, but Ningaloo Reef at the moment is a good example of it. Uh, and there's another one, of course, with the Northern Endeavour up off Northern Australia. But um, Ningaloo Reef is, is, is a prime example of a company um, trying to avoid its responsibilities, isn't it? Completely. Completely. Like, Ningaloo is really special, really beautiful. Australia's second largest reef. Um, Kevin, it's, it's um, about a thousand k's north of Perth, but runs through a couple of hundred k's off the coast and often quite close to the coast, what they call the coral coast near Exmouth. Um, and, you know, whale sharks, humpback whales, um, prolific coral and fish species, really important place, world heritage. Um, and along come Woodside, uh, major LNG, you know, offshore fossil producer. <clears throat> um, they want to dispose of an old steel structure, like a big two, two and a half uh, thousand tonne steel mooring. Um, now, the easiest way for them and cheapest way for them is to sort of cut the cable and let it sink. And they want to drop it onto the seabed a couple of k's off Ningaloo Reef. And their company promotion is, and this will enhance the reef by creating an extra reef extension for fish to have new habitat, etc. There's massive concerns with this. Um, and that is because there's a lot of plastic product and a lot of toxic product, especially manganese, which is a soluble heavy metal, in the actual structure itself. That will uh, indisputably leach out into and impact the surrounding environment. So, you know, there's concerns about the environmental impact, there's concerns about its compliance with international law, like law of the sea, the London Convention for the Prevention of Marine Pollution and a whole lot of things. And there's also, like, as you said, um, the fact that this is like a corner-cutting, cost-cutting exercise. It's not the most responsible. It's the most convenient. It's the same as the petrol approach to radioactive waste. Um, So there's a lot of people, a lot of organisations very active in the space of trying to act to uh, protect Ingaloo, which is a like a very important, worthy and pivotal role in itself. They're also trying to act to ensure that this doesn't become a precedent for the marine deposition or or dumping of unwanted, unused, um, obsolete uh, industrial infrastructure or extractive infrastructure. And there's also a real concern because the company doing it, Woodside, is is, uh, seeking to develop a new LNG project. It's working with BHP on a new LNG project, Kevin, uh, called Scarborough. And Scarborough's, um, if it went ahead, it, um, its impacts would be huge. It's one and a half billion, north of one and a half billion tonnes of, of carbon pollution released every year. That's 15, imagine 15 coal-fired power stations, full emissions every each and every year. And it's a major project. They're looking at a $16 billion spend and they're close to making a fine, uh, final investment decision. So um, there's a lot of organisations saying this company should not, A, be allowed to dump its failures from the past and, B, be allowed to then, in particularly in the climate where we're seeing the IPCC report saying no new extraction, no new exploration for fossils, we've got to not allow Woodside and BHP, both you know, with really quite suspect track records, to be looking at $16 billion project that opens up the genie to more fossil pollution. 
Yeah, and um, of course there's also the Northern Endeavour. Now this is a um, an oil rig effectively uh, 500k north of Australia in the Timor Sea, but it was owned by Woodside, it was sold to a miner company that went broke and somehow it's ended up being owned by the government, I'm not sure how. But the government has now slapped a levy on um, on big producers to to pay the cost of the clean-up that's going to be required. But Woodside is the biggest voice opposing the lever, yet it actually owned it in the first place and caused the pollution. It, it's, um, it, it's really uh, quite extraordinary how this, how the system is... Well, it's not that extraordinary when you look at how the system designed and who benefits, but it's, it's completely the externalisation and the publicisation, as in making public, of costs environmental costs, economic costs, they're imposed on the environment or borne by the environment or they're imposed on the taxpayer and borne by the taxpayer. Meanwhile, any profit is privatised. So socialising costs, privatising profit is uh, is the model and this is absolutely spot on. It's the culture of rip-ship run um, and uh, and that, that technique of, um, of on-selling uh, failed or an aged or a stalled and in care and maintenance asset to a smaller company which is unproven and has like 15 bucks in a post office box is a standard sort of technique used by resource companies here and around the world. It's on sale at point of departure. And we've seen situations Rio Tinto sold coal operations for one gold coin, one dollar, to a minor company which then assets stripped and went into receivership, Rio has been able to legally step aside from uh, rehabilitation obligations because they were on-sold to the company, this minor company that, you know, just dealt with scrap metal. Like, these sort of things are um, significant structural deficiencies and they're reflected in in the, the terrestrial mine and extractors rehabilitation system. Kevin, as, as we've spoken before, in Australia there's 50,000 unrehabilitated mines. Now some of them are some of them are not a massive worry. They're more like a worry if you're wandering around the whipstick forest at night and you fall into an old mine shaft, you know, right. and old, yeah, that that's not that's not the end of the world. Might be for your legs, but it's not the end of the world. But there's a bunch of those fifty thousand that are leaking daily. Heavy metals, uh, contaminants into groundwater, into surface water, which are like legacies of the past poorly performed, operated, now abandoned and unrehabilitated, which are hemorrhaging in the present and contaminating the future. And again, it all links back, or at least in the lens that I use, it links back to responsibility and respect. Have you got a bit of respect for the past, for the present, for the future, for people and for other species? And have you got a bit of um, a sense of responsibility, a sense of stewardship, a sense that you're the current inheritor of what's gone before and what will come after? Or are you just into, like, slash and burn and devil take the hindmost? And this is a system that re- that rewards slash and burn. So that's why it's so important, like civil society, watchdog groups, 3CR, you know, environmental lawyers, Aboriginal organisations that speak for country and culture, all these things are... The sort of gulliver strings that the, the strings that tie down this extractive gulliver industry, because at the moment, national environment laws, state environment and cultural heritage laws, environmental protections, they're either not fit for purpose or they're not being applied. 
Yeah, oh, um, maybe this would be a good time to talk a bit about the IPCC most recent report and maybe some of the things that like would be good to do <laughs> instead. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, don't mean to be like, you know, prophet of gloom. I don't oh. feel that at all. Like there's, we, we face hard issues and hard choices Yeah, and everybody knows that. But yeah, and there's not a lot harder. Well, nuclear weapons is right up there with hard global poverty. Lots of stuff's hard actually, but but the... Um, uh, the challenge of climate change and addressing um, rising carbon emissions and subsequent rising temperatures is profound. Um, and, yeah, like you said, the IPCC, the International uh, Panel on Climate Change, which is a UN body that was established to assess the science of climate change. It was created in uh, 1988, so it's, it's going back. There's 195 member states. They, every uh, four, five, six years, do a real detailed snapshot of what's going on, more than a snapshot, a detailed assessment. That's come out this week. It's landed this week. Uh, rigorous methodology, rigorous science, peer-reviewed, all that sort of stuff, but it is just really disturbing reading. It talks about uh, um, that there is no doubt of two things, that there is more carbon going into the world and, and that is um, causing damage, climate damage and chaos, and that it is humans that are responsible for it. It speaks of catastrophic impacts for the Pacific. It speaks of the need to halve greenhouse gases. It talks of immense damage, hotter and longer fire seasons, floods, extreme weather events. Um, it's a real uh, concern and, mm -hmm. and a hot, really, really red flag stuff. Um, and it's very important because it's landing and will hopefully inform positioning and talk and policies um, around ahead of COP26, the, the Global Conference of Parties on Climate, which is set for the first two weeks of November in Glasgow. Um, so this red flag's been put up by the world's top scientists and they've said it is urgent. There's urgent need to act. Um, and so you really... It, there's no debate. Like, there shouldn't be anyway that there hasn't been for donkeys, but this is over and out for debate. This is sort of like, does smoking cause harm? Like, yeah. this is... The, yeah. the debate is over. Now it's the discussion of how do you manage impact, how do you reduce, how do you wean people off the habit, all of those sort of things. Um, so the IPCC has put up the red flag, and yesterday the Morrison government, in its response, pretty much waved a white flag. It was... Um, it, it has you know, no intention of turning back on a gas and fossil fueled uh, lead recovery, mm -hmm. which is um, their framing. Um, it's, it's seeking to open up new extractive gas and fracking fields. It's saying that, you know, it's, it's developing nations that have to rise up and share more load. Like the, the Western nations, we've become rich because of the exploitation of um, developing, of developing world or First Nations land. And so there's a particular uh, responsibility on rich nations to show leadership. And Australia saying, oh, look, developing nations need to share, share the load and step up is just an absolute uh, rejection of, of history and reality in the sense of capacity and responsibility from the Morrison government. This talk of technology, not taxes, nice little, nice little backroom thing. You can see the crew spitballing it and clapping in the air, fist pumping when they've come up with technology, not taxes. So the Australian, you know, we've got to push now, like articles in the Australian press today, Matt Canavan and others calling it, we don't need to worry about climate change because 
um, A, it's just panic merchants, and B, um, we can just uh, roll out small modular nuclear reactors which don't exist, which, you know, cost a fortune, which are not even there. Like, the, the Australian government response to this is chaotic. It is been absolutely a classic example, um, you know, not, not of corruption, but of absolute state capture by mm -hmm. a sector. There's one sector of this society which is holding the, 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 this country, which has a really high and positive uptake for renewable energy with two and a half million roofs with solar panels on it, with an appetite from all sorts of people, um, you know, right across all postcodes in this country to change that, that, that they, people are aware that climate change is real. They see the impact. People saw things burn that have never burned. So, you know, they saw a Prime Minister who didn't hold a hose. They saw things burn that never burned. They see the world's leading scientists come out and say, get used to it. Like we've seen now the images of Greece and that images of people on a ferry, like images of people at Malakuta, like yeah. the resonances of these things, like it's crunch time. So people are like, well, let's get on with it. And Australians want to embrace renewables. And the biggest impediment isn't the technology, isn't the cost, isn't the efficiency, it's the federal government. And people so, drowning in a Chinese um, Chinese station, underground railway station, because of flooding. Um, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. It um, is extraordinary. Actually, and Barnaby Joyce was interviewed this morning and he was saying about the cost of all this and we have to do this and do that. Um, and he was asked, but what's the cost of not doing it? And he said that was a trick question. Um, but but then he he was also... Um, he was also was put to him that, but surely it's the government's responsibility to come up with all the answers to this. And he said, no, no, that's up to the CSIRO and the scientists. Now, David, I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you see some sort of flaw in his argument here? Yeah, I was thinking if it's a trick question, could the one-trick pony give it, you know, a non-trick answer? Um, the the it, This government says the market will make a response. The market will decide, and the market has decided. No one wants to fund uh, big coal. Absolutely no one wants to fund big nuclear. So what does the government do? It puts imposts on renewables, jacks up the prices. It has an inquiry to try and force superannuation funds and financial institutions to not have, as in their terms, activist criteria for their lending. Mm. So it does it says it champions the free market when it suits, but when the free market comes up with an option which is, yeah, I don't care where the power comes from, but renewables are cheap and clean, let's use them, it then intervenes in the market. It champions the science, well it doesn't really, but it says it does, when the science is in its way or the science is inconclusive. But when the science is absolute and unequivocal and it says this is human impact, it's adverse and we need to change and said you used to use hope. The other thing that's important in this scientific report is underpinning all of it is hope. It's not saying it is too late. It's saying it is urgent. So when the science says change government, they get in the way of the science. CSIRO and AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator, have already said uh, renewables, firmed renewables, is the cheapest form of new electricity generation in Australia. So... The economists are in step. The scientists are in step. The Australian people want this stuff on their roof and power bills reduced and dollars in their pockets. The block is not technology. The block is not the timing. It's actually a government that is hostage to a sector that would literally 
keep burning right to the bitter end. They're in the bunker and they want to take us with it, down with them. And that is completely unacceptable. And it's really time to just crack that open and say, you know, we actually want and will not accept power that literally costs the earth because there's cheaper and cleaner, more positive and proven alternatives available now. So get out of the way of the change that is happening. Yep. And um, the one takeaway from the report was that every tonne of um, carbon emissions that is kept in the ground makes a difference. So basically, if you are in, involved in any way in community action against climate change or against uh, fossil fuel companies, then you are really making an impact. So that's like one thing to take away, that action is still really important. Absolutely. Action is not only really important, not only really urgent, but as you said, Deb, action is really effective. It, it is making the difference. And so our choices now are to just abandon all hope, uh, you know, party like the fall of the Roman Empire and then fall, um, or, and that won't be much of a party, you don't want to be in the West when the oil runs out, and, um, the, or the other option, the sane option, and the option that actually people want, the option that people do every day is from efforts and initiatives, grand or small, local, in your house or global, um, those efforts and initiatives actually create a web that embraces and propels and cocoons change. And that's what we need to do. Like, we have to actually now bypass or, or just ignore impediments we haven't got the time for that. If they won't accept the science, if they won't accept the economics, if they won't accept the technology, the proven technology, then they're actually a blocker to action that is pivotal to our and our kids and all future life on Earth. Chances of survival and quality of life, so get out of the road. Yeah, Dave, look, unfortunately, we have to accept that time's up. <laughs> we could have talked about this forever, I reckon, but uh, look, we'll get, we'll, obviously we'll get you on again sometime soon. But Dave, look, once again, thanks for your time today, and we've covered a hell of a lot of ground. Absolute pleasure, and I'm very happy to get out of the road so you can wrap up this show. But thanks for, thanks for the opportunity and thanks for your work. It makes a massive difference. Okay, thanks, Thank Dave. Thank you. Right, Dave Sweeney there, who's, of course, the anti-nuclear campaigner with Australian Conservation Foundation. Next week's housing, Zeb. Um, yep. Yeah, and uh, thanks for keeping us on air and doing all the wonderful push-button <laughs> stuff. No yeah. worries. All right. Okay. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.